This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, friends. Um, I'm going to be reading this morning from Acts chapter 13, verse 42 through the end of the chapter. So Acts 13, 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Good morning, Redemption. How are you? Good. Hope you all are enjoying the warm, windy weather. Uh, there's Here's a weird thing that we like to do as human beings. Uh, you get a new package in the mail, a new couch, chair, electronic device. You rip it open. You dig around for the instructions, and you say to yourself, awesome, some new knee pads to put this together with. <laughs> At least us guys do that. Uh, instructions, they're important. We need instructions. I remember thinking to myself, it would be great if uh, I had instructions for children, raising them. Thanks to the internet, we now have them. Uh, so here's some important instructions for those of you who have kids. If you forgot these, these are important. Uh, for example, washing baby. This is a good way to wash the baby. This is a terrible way to wash your baby. Um, bonding with baby. Yes, snuggle. no. They're not one to enjoy a cup of coffee with. Um, Or playing with baby. Now this one, I know some of you guys. This looks like fun. This is not okay. It's dangerous. Don't do that with your children. But there are some instructions for children we need to take seriously. Such as how to put on a a life jacket properly. Because if you're going to take your child out on a boat and you don't put on this life jacket properly, this is a matter of life and death. If that boat goes under, your child's not going to make it. There are instructions in life that we do need to take seriously. But Jamie preached a sermon last week and he walked us through Paul's incredible sermon, his first sermon in the book of Acts, to a group of Jews. And if you remember, at the end of that sermon, Paul gave 
some instructions, a particular warning. Jamie summed up that warning for us by, by saying this, failure without Christ. There's failure without Christ if we don't believe in the message of grace found in Christ. I'm going to read Acts 13, 40 and 41 again. This was the exact warning. Paul says, beware, therefore, there it is. There's the instruction, the warning, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. There's a warning there that has life and death, eternal life and death consequences. And what you're going to see today in our story is a group of people who heard this warning and refused to listen. And there's a lesson here for us. Because there's potential for some of you to hear the warning and refuse to listen. I have to emphasize the seriousness of the message this morning. Because it's easy to come in week after week, hear the gospel preached, sing a gospel message, hear the word preached week after week, and it becomes white noise. And for some of us who've believed for years, you've heard this message and it can become dull. But listen closely, church. The message today, eternity is at stake. Meaning, if you die today and you close your eyes in death, there is eternity before you and that is what is at stake. I didn't say that. The text said it. Look at this. Verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, and we'll get into this in detail, was necessary that the word of God spoken, be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of what? Eternal life. Again in verse 48, Luke writes this, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The message for us this warning is so serious that eternal life is at stake. That's why a big idea for today is this. I will believe fully in the message of grace because eternal life is at stake. I will believe fully in the message of grace because eternal life is at stake. And from our text today, I want to look at four signs of someone who is at risk of rejecting eternal life. We're going to look at four signs of someone who's at risk of rejecting eternal life. The first sign that we see in our story this morning is this. It's, it's blurring faith with emotional excitement. Blurring faith with emotional excitement. Let's read our text again. In verse 42, it says this. As they went out, speaking of Paul and Barnabas here, they had just finished preaching their sermon. They're leaving the synagogue. The people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So see, initially, there's this emotional response of excitement. I mean, these people were jazzed. They were stoked. They're like, hey, Paul, come on, tell us more. We want Come back next week. This is awesome stuff. See, you got to remember the Jews, and hopefully you know this, were longing for their Messiah. They wanted to see Jerusalem, their capital again. They wanted their king to come. They wanted Israel to be restored. They wanted their king. And Paul tells them, 
hey, guess what? Your Messiah has come. And they're like, yes, good news. And he strung together their whole history. You remember Jamie told us this. He strung together their whole history showing this is all the things that were happening. And the Messiah came. And you look and like, man, this is like a really positive response. Like if you were a missionary at this event, you'd be writing home being like, God is moving in this place. You'd get your phone out. You'd be taking pictures of the crowds. Hashtag God at work. You'd be so excited at what's going on here in Jerusalem. I'm sorry, in Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas' response is interesting, but he gives them an, because he gives them an exhortation to continue in grace. See, their emotions are really high here. They're very excited. But the seed isn't taking root. And I think, I think Paul and Barnabas knew this. Because look, look what they said in verse 43. As they spoke with them, they urged them to continue in the grace of God. It's almost like they're saying like, look guys, we know you're excited. This is really exciting news. The Messiah is here. But, but you got to remember that this Messiah came to cover your sins. You got to remember that. That's what's important. Keep on that. It's about the grace. It's about your salvation. Continue in that. And that's what he's warning them. And he's exhorting them to keep with it. But as Courtney just read, and you're aware there was an explicit rejection of that message of grace. They didn't continue. Because a week later, they gather back and they turn on him. Those high emotions that were thrilled about Paul's message are now equally as high attacking that man and that message. So what's the message here for us? I think it's pretty simple is you can't rely on your emotions as the sign you trusted in grace and received eternal life. You can't. I grew up at a summer camp, many of you know that, and we saw this happen often. Kids would come, and and God works at summer camps. I love camp, I still do. People get saved at camp, but we would see this happen. Kids would come, and there's something about the excitement of you know the, the fun and the relationships that you're building, the community. You hear these dynamic speakers, and at the end of the week, you have these campfire services, and kids are getting saved all over the place. And you're like, man, I'm so excited. Look at how God is working. And then kids would go home, and two weeks later, three weeks later, that excitement wears off. Until next summer, they come again, and I don't know how many kid, times this happened, how many kids did this, they get saved again. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't real last summer, I'm going to get saved this summer. And again, and again, and again. I mean, some kids probably got saved 16 times. They get caught up in the emotion. Of course, there are many who did get saved, but that, that would never happen at redemption, would it? That can't happen here. I want to happen to you or your kids or in your small group, can it? And it can. So if you know this, we are a church that believes in champions, passionate worship. We believe wholeheartedly that the Bible teaches you should be in love with God in your heart and express that. But this text also points to two dangers you need to be aware of in regards to your emotions. The first is this, is 
being emotionally excited about the wrong thing. See, these Jews were jazzed about their Messiah. But they were not jazzed about their Messiah coming to take care of their sins. They were excited the Messiah was going to come take care of everybody else's sins, but not their own. So you can come and you can be pumped about the music here and, and the preaching and the good theology in the community, but you can come and miss the most important thing we want you to be excited about, which is Jesus. The other thing you need to be aware of is confusing your emotional high with depth of faith. See, it feels good to feel good about God. It feels good to feel good after a sermon. But your feelings are not sufficient enough to identify if you really believe. Because our emotions should be a response to truth. They should flow out of a heart of faith. And we need to be careful about confusing those with belief. So that begs the question, how, how do we keep a right perspective on our emotions and not confuse them with belief? Well, let me give you a tool that I think will be helpful Because throughout church history, pastors and theologians have been very aware, the Bible is very aware of the way our emotions can play games with us. I mean, if you guys had bad pizza last night, you might not be jazzed this morning, right? You've had those moments. So what do we do? I think the key is for our worship, our passionate worship, not to come from our emotions, but to use a term that you see often, especially in the old Puritans, of our affections. Let me use this chart from Gerald McDermott that helps you to clarify what I mean by emotions versus affections. Because see, your emotions are fleeting. They can come and go. You have good days and bad days. You've all lived there, but affections are long-lasting. Your affection for Jesus should not change no matter what you ate or how your day went. Emotions are superficial, but your affections are deep. Your emotions are sometimes overpowering, but your affections should be consistent with your, with your belief. Our emotions often fail to produce action, but our affections always result in action. If you really love Jesus, it should change the way you live. And our emotions are often just feelings disconnected from the mind and will, but our affections involve mind, will, and feelings. So your affections are responses in your heart to truths you know about God and his gospel. That's why every single song we sing here is based on truth. We want you to sing and feel love for the Lord based on truth. Because listen, your faith is not in how you feel about God. But in what Christ has done for you because of God, because of how God feels about you. I'll say it one more time. Your faith is not in how you feel about God, but what Christ has done for you because of how God feels about you. So the first sign of someone at risk of rejecting eternity is blurring faith with emotional excitement. The second is this, is believing there's grace for me, but not for others. Maybe you ask yourself, what, what causes what caused these, this group of Jews to pendulum swing so hard in a week? 
And we just identified, right? So they had their emotions, their excitement was coming from the wrong thing. They were believing the wrong thing. They're excited about the wrong thing. But this next point, we need to dig a little deeper because there's something more sinister at work here. Look at verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So the whole city comes out, and the Jews are like, oh my goodness, look at this. Look at all these gospel opportunities. Look at all these people that we can tell the good news of the Messiah about. Is that what they said? No. They were filled with jealousy. And what were they so jealous of? I, th- I think it's pretty simple. I think, th- I think of the attention. In that whole sermon that Paul had preached to them, they missed the main point. They heard Messiah, 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 and they thought, King, destroy Romans, restore Israel. Awesome. But if you remember from Jamie's sermon, the emphasis was salvation, saving from sins, freedom from corruption, freedom from our own corruption. And they understood accurately that they were God's special chosen people, but they did not understand why they were God's special chosen people. One, they were God's special chosen people as Israelites, not because of anything they had done, because of God's grace. They didn't earn it. And two, they were God's special chosen people to be a light to the Gentiles. Paul even reminds of this in verse 47. Do you see this? Jump down to verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. See, Israel's existence was never about Israel. It was about the world. God saving the world through Israel's Messiah. But what happened is the Jews looked at the Gentiles that had come, and they looked at them and they said, Wicked, sinners, not special people, not God's people. Who are they to be receiving this blessing? And so jealousy burned in their hearts. For them, no Messiah of Israel was open to Gentiles. It was grace for me and not for thee. And therein lies the risk. That's the risk that puts eternal life in question. Because listen, church, a message that deems some people more worthy of grace than others is not a message of grace at all. If there is grace for you, but you cannot see or offer or share that grace with others, then you don't understand the gospel of grace at all. See, the Jews thought themselves as more worthy of the Messiah. They were more worthy of grace. And I hope your heresy radar just went up because that is not grace. You aren't worthy of grace. That's the very definition of grace. Grace tells us that no one is worthy of God's love and affection. In fact, Paul puts it this way in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is worthy. And do you know the greater context of Romans 3.23? Do you know who Paul's writing to? Jews and Gentiles. Who have a hard time understanding that all are guilty. 
See, listen, Jews and Gentiles, you and me, Purdue fans and IU fans, and Notre Dame fans, Christian homes and homes where Christ was nothing but a swear word, Ukrainians and Russians, Hatfields and McCoys, Bloods and Crips, exegetical preaching churches and seeker-sensitive megachurches, all are fallen, all are sinners in need of God's grace. There is none who are more worthy than others. And a sign you have missed the message of grace is when you sit in jealousy and hatred of others who you deem less worthy of that grace. Why is that? Because at the heart of that jealousy, you know what that reveals? A heart that thinks grace is earned. A heart that is putting trust in oneself, in one's own righteousness. It's a heart of pride. And that is not where eternal life is found. It's not in your works. It's not in your worth. It's not in your righteousness. In fact, Paul writes this in Ephesians 2. You guys know these verses, 4 and 5. But God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Missing this is missing eternal life, and that's why Paul can write in verse 46, speaking to the Jews, he says, Since you thrust it aside, speaking of God's word, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. This is sometimes hard to wrap our heads around, but what he's saying here is the Jews' rejection of the Gentiles is revealing a rejection of the gospel itself. And as a result, they brought judgment upon themselves and did not receive eternal life. My um, parents gained custody of my cousin Chris when he was about eight years old. He lived with us for until he was 16 and he moved out of the house. My aunt, my mom's younger sister, died of breast cancer when Chris was three. Chris is about six weeks younger than I am. He lived with his dad for a number of years and they moved around a lot. His dad couldn't hold a steady job. Eventually his dad got remarried and... um, he and Chris's stepmom had a couple kids of their own. And for whatever reason, unbeknownst to any of us to this day, uh, Chris's dad and stepmom decided that they, they couldn't handle Chris. It was too much for them. So they asked my parents to take custody of him. And they lived in the area for a while, eventually moved to North Carolina with their own kids. And so we had Chris with us. And you can imagine the emotional toll that'll take on an eight-year-old boy to be rejected by his own father. And my dad understood that emotional toll. And and the men in our church, many of the men understood that emotional toll. Eight-year-old Drew did not understand that emotional toll. And as I watched my dad and these men pour into Chris, taking 
special weekend trips with him, giving him all this attention, trying to be a surrogate father, a male figure to him, love him well as Jesus would love Chris, eight-year-old Drew's heart grew jealous. Because Chris got in trouble all the time at school. Why does he deserve that attention? Chris disobeyed my mom and dad. He didn't respect my mom and dad who gave them a home to live in when nobody else would. So, so how come he gets all this special attention? I'm the good kid. I'm the son who obeys mom and dad. And I didn't see it. And I didn't see that my jealousy was just as wicked and disobedient, ugly in God's eyes, as Chris's disobedience. We do that. Because listen, I didn't understand, because grace is scandalous to us. Grace is scandalous because it's this generous pouring out of love, affection, acceptance, and forgiveness on people who absolutely don't deserve it. Christ's death on the cross covered your sins. You didn't deserve that. And it covers the sins of the people you love the least. And and it's so easy to read a text like this. I I was struggling as I was studying this text because my mind went here and I look at it and I'm like, all right, all right. So Gentiles. And we place ourselves in in the place of the Gentiles in these texts because, well, technically I don't know most of you. But most of us I know aren't Gentile or Gentiles. I don't maybe some of you are Jewish, but the, most of us are Gentiles. So we look at this text and we're like, oh, we're Gentiles. And I had to fight with this text and realize, no, we can be the Jews in this text. So the question I have for you this morning, a couple of them to think about. Do you deem others unworthy of grace? Do you see yourself as more righteous than someone else? Here's a tougher one. Do you get jealous when you see others succeed? Maybe when you see God working in those other churches over there, those churches over there that aren't our church, that aren't doing things the way we think we should do it, do you get jealous of them? Maybe you grow frustrated when you see new people come to the church. What? Don't do that. Yeah, we have this little secret, right? We have this tight-knit community, and and we're afraid others are going to find out the special thing we have here. They're going to mess it all up. We're so close. we got this community, and they're new, and they don't know how things go here. And they're not worthy to be part of what we have. Maybe, how about this? Maybe you're afraid to share the gospel with your neighbors, not because you think it won't work, but because you know it will. And you don't want to mess up what you got. Who are you withholding grace from? Who are you refusing to share the message of grace found in Jesus Christ with? A second sign of someone at risk of missing eternal life is believing there's grace for me, but not for others. The third is this. We're going to move through these last two pretty quickly here is blurring faith with emotional excitement. Oh, I went backwards. You already did that one, didn't you? Let's go. Let's go again. Got to put my papers in the right order next time. All right, here we go. Uh, It's actually this. Cross that out. Put this instead. 
uh, blaspheming the works and words of God. Blaspheming the works and words of God. So you'll notice as we're working through each of these signs, there's, there's a growing escalation. Things are getting a little deeper, a little worse. That rejection of the gospel of grace, the message of grace is getting more extreme. So look at verse 45 when he says, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and here it is, and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Our text here says that they contradicted Paul and reviled him. I'm, I'm summarizing these phrases here as blaspheming the works and words of God, and here's why. So this word contradicting, when it says they're contradicting Paul, they're saying, excuse me, they're, they're speaking against him. They're saying is, Paul, what you are preaching is out of line. Everything that they were excited about a week before, they are now in direct opposition to. Jesus is not the Messiah. Jesus is not the one who has come to bring salvation. Salvation is not available for everyone. They're, they're speaking against him. And Jamie shared last week, that whole message, you remember this, was about the word of God and the work of God. It was God doing this work. So they're speaking against that. They're speaking against God. And it says he was, they were reviling him. Depending on what translation you're using, if you're not using ESV, maybe you're using a different translation, it could even translate that word for you as blaspheme. ESV does revile, but it's that same word. They're, they're blaspheming. Well, how is that? How are they blaspheming? Well, because, remember, Paul is preaching Christ is the Messiah, Christ is God, and they're saying he's not. That's blasphemy. So you have a group of people directly blaspheming the works and words of God. Thus, here it is, Paul's warning in his sermon explicitly ignored. This is why he can say, Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And then he quotes Isaiah 49.6, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And he reminds them of what their mission was, what the Messiah came to do, and what they're rejecting. And what's awesome in this, I love, is, is that these group of people may reject the Messiah, but the Messiah is still going to do and accomplish what he set out to accomplish, which is save Gentiles, which is why we're all sitting here. Now, I would be, I'll be honest, I'll be surprised if any of you here see yourselves doing this. I, I love my church. I know many of you well, and I don't see this heart in our people. Praise the Lord. But I have to tell you that there's a risk because of the trajectory of sin. See, the Jews didn't start here. We just read at the beginning of the story. They were excited, but they ended here. See, harboring jealousy and lacking grace towards others is planting seeds in your heart that will grow into something else. And doing things our own way, refusing to respond to God's call, making our life story about us, all these things, taking the attention away from God's glory and his work and his word is planting seeds that can turn into something you don't want it to turn into.
And the other thing we need to see from this is that actions towards others are actions toward God. They were blaspheming Paul's message, and in the process, they were blaspheming Paul. They were mistreating Gentiles and not loving Gentiles. And in, in, in true, the truth here is they're, is they're not loving God. It was a rejection of Christ. So we're called to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. And, and those aren't two separate commands. We don't love God and hate our brother. In fact, John writes it in 1 John four nineteen this way. He says, we love because he first loved us. We all know that. We love that verse. But do you often keep reading? I know I don't. But he goes on and says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, what is he? A liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The third sign of someone at risk of rejecting eternal life is blaspheming the works and words of God. And the last is this. Sad turn of events for this group of Jews is bullying God's people to suppress grace. Look at verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Amen? Awesome, right? And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Another reason I'm a Calvinist. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. See, the Gentiles responded in joyful belief. Like that's what everybody should have been doing. They heard the message of, of grace. They all should have believed. So the Gentiles get saved and the word of God is spreading everywhere. Exciting times. This is stuff that you do hashtag God to work about. This is awesome news in the city of Pisidian Antioch. There's genuine revival. And how do the Jews respond as the revival spreads? They get even more incense and they grow in their hatred. If you thought that this would turn the hearts of these Jews around, you would be wrong. They dug in their heels. See, the message of grace was too much for them. It's too much. This is too good. We can't let this happen. It couldn't be allowed to go on. There's no way their idea of a Messiah would allow Gentiles to be participants in God's grace. So persecution ramped up to where Paul and Barnabas needed to leave. There's a whole sermon right there in that, a couple sentences. I won't go there. But the old adage, you know, the old adage, don't shoot the messenger, doesn't apply here. shoot the messenger because they hated the message. Again, I, I don't see this happening in our church because this is a, right. This is a trajectory, just like the last point. But if we aren't careful and aware of how deceitful our hearts can be, we can end up here. And you say that will never happen to me. I'm telling you right now, it happens every day. There are people in my life that I know 
young men that I discipled who hate the gospel of grace, who hate the message of Jesus Christ now, and spend every day calling out people who preach this message. Young men that I loved and poured into. It happens. People who claim to once believe in grace, actively seeking to suppress it. So what do we do? What's the response? Well, if you look at our texts today, I actually see, after all this, I give you lots of applications. I see two responses that are open to us. The first is this, to repent. Go back to verse 45. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with what? Jealousy. If you have res- if any of this has resonated with you, and you see yourself in any of these texts, and you're like, "Man, I'm I'm there. I don't show grace. I don't. I, I confuse being excited about things with actually being in love with Jesus and finding my faith and hope and trust in His death, burial, and resurrection." The call for you is simple: repent, repent of your sin, put your faith not in your works not in your own righteousness, not in your emotions, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your sins. Turn to him. Repent. He'll receive you. He'll, he'll forgive your sins. He promised it. But the other response for many of us here, I hope, is this. Look at verse 48. Oh, I'm sorry. 52. Jump down to 52. So, the Jews were filled with jealousy, and look at this. And the disciples were filled with what? With joy. They were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So you can repent and you can rejoice. Rejoice that you are forgiven. Rejoice that you have received grace you don't deserve. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. Let's pray. God, I thank you this morning for hard truths. For warnings in your word that we need to be aware of. They're hard to see and hear sometimes, but you do it because you love us. You promise that you discipline your children out of love. Just like we discipline our own kids out of love because... We care deeply about them. And you care about our eternal lives. And so you bring us texts that warn us to trust in grace. To put our hope in Christ alone. And to beware of sin that can root so deep. God, eternal life is at stake. And I pray that if there's anybody here who has not put their faith in Christ alone... In his work, they would do that today. They would repent of their sins. And for the rest of us, that we would walk out of here rejoicing in true affection that we are saved, that our God loves us and we are forgiven. We'll give you the praise and glory for all the work that we know you will do. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you, Redemption. You were loved.